You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And today we're going to have a conversation or a discussion about critical thinking. I've been thinking a lot lately about everything that's been going on with the election, with coronavirus in particular. I've been having conversations with loved ones, uh, friends and colleagues, like I'm sure most of you have as well. And I'm beginning to wonder, have we lost our ability to critically think? I'm sure a lot of you out there feel the same way. We're coming off of an election in the state of Georgia where I live. We literally have people that are pulling ballots from underneath a table and logging them in multiple times after having the Republican poll watchers go home. And people like me are screaming, what is going on? when the majority of people in the country believe that an election fraud took place. And people will speak to me as if, well, if we can prove election fraud, uh, we'll have to look into that. And I'm thinking to myself, as somebody who spends a lifetime of critical thinking and taking in facts and making risk assessments, I'm thinking to myself, with the data that I have available to me, there's no question election fraud occurred. What needs to happen is you got to prove to me that the election fraud um, didn't happen. Because with the facts that I have, there's no question in my mind that that's what it tells me. Now, we're not here to get into the politics of the election, although we'll touch on it a little bit. I'm more interested in our response uh, or lack thereof to the COVID-19 pandemic I just spent a week in Las Vegas. I sponsor a UFC fighter, and he invited me to go and be in his corner. It was great. We went out to Las Vegas, and I got to see the inner workings of the UFC and see this fighter, how he made weight and how he prepares. But it also allowed me to see what it's like to go to a state where they have mask mandates and tremendous lockdowns. And it really got me thinking, um, how did we get to this place? Now, I've always told you guys that I'm not uh, a podcast host in particular. I'm not looking to make any money this way, and I don't really care about how people perceive me. I'm simply going to tell the truth. I listen to a lot of other podcasts and radio shows and news organizations, like I'm sure many of you do, and I've been very frustrated by the parsed speech um, and the political nature of the way they report things, like, for example, the way people walk on eggshells about suggesting that there was election fraud when the evidence of it is just all around us. And I really feel the onus should be on the people who want to prove there was an election fraud. Well, I'm looking at what's going on with our COVID response in the hospitals, the fact that people who have non-COVID issues are still having trouble getting to the hospital, the fact that we have early treatment options, including quercetin, which is an, um, an anti-parasitic drug that's been shown to be effective against COVID, uh, hydroxychloroquine, which absolutely has been shown to be effective against COVID-19, and yet we're still not employing these strategies to try and mitigate this disaster. Now, early on, as I spoke to friends, family, uh, people in the political arena, there was always sort of this uh, 
this conversation about couching our speech because we don't want to affect people in certain ways. And let me just give you an example, the masks. I'm telling you, as a doctor who went to medical school, uh, I studied, I've been studying masks uh, for almost 30 years. I'm a surgeon. I use them all the time. I'm very familiar with them. I'm just telling you, there is no research out there to suggest that masks are effective the way we're using them at mitigating the transmission of what we call influenza-like illnesses or or, uh, respiratory diseases, none. These cloth masks are absolutely ridiculous, and I'm being told by people not to bring it up, and because there's a psychological uh, aspect of it, like people want to feel like they have some control, and so the mask allows people to feel like they're protecting themselves, and it gives them control, and so I'm being asked not to talk about it because I don't want to take that feeling of protection away from people, even though it's fake. And I've been sort of uh, avoiding the topic for the most part because I know people are scared. um, And I know that some people uh, believe in the masks, and I, I don't want to take that sort of uh, security blanket away from anybody who's relying on it. But now I'm starting to see this sort of uh, acceptance of wearing masks to governors and politicians with no force of law whatsoever, no scientific data to back them up, mandating us be in masks. And the masks are a stepping stone for them to do other things like keep our businesses locked down and keep our kids out of school and basically drive our society into the ground. And I've really gotten to the point now where I'm done with this. I want to talk about critical thinking. I want to take the data that we've had, and I've kind of put together a lot of information for you guys regarding the COVID pandemic that that we've been experiencing over the year. A lot of it we've been talking about on this show. And I just kind of want to go through some of this stuff and do what we do on this show, which is let's think out loud. Let's just take the facts that we have available to us and let's talk about it. So I'm hearkening back to when America's frontline doctors, I was one of them, went to Washington, D.C. for the sole purpose of pointing out to the American people that their is 65 years of data backing up the safety and the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. Now, when we were uh, in Washington, D.C., we had 18 million live Facebook followers who were interested in what we had to say, and big tech censored us. And the the predicate that they gave for censoring us was they made the assertion that we were making statements that were against the World Health Organization and the CDC. Basically saying that what we were saying about hydroxychloroquine was going against the recommendations from the World Health Organization and the CDC. But what they left out of that narrative was the fact that the CDC and World Health Organization recommendations were based on fake studies that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, the number one and number two medical journals, respected medical journals on planet Earth, published fake, phony data, not weak data, not controversial data. 
it was fake and made up data. Now, where I come from, when somebody pulls such a blatant lie, such a blatant um, level of deceit, you sort of lose credibility. That's what I call critical thinking. If there's a person out there and they lie to me all the time and they tell me uh, things that are not true, at some point I say to myself, I'm not going to take what those people tell me anymore and make any, uh, I'm not going to believe them anymore. The New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet phony articles, retracted articles, articles that a lot of doctors still don't even know occurred. That's how bad and how poor and how corrupt, frankly, our media has become, is that they won't even let us know this information. And it's these lies of commission and then these lies of omission that have really affected uh, people's ability to critically speak. And Really, the fundamental basis of today's show stems from my loved ones, the people in my inner circle, people who I respect and know that are smart and who I believe have critical thinking skills, but are still being manipulated by this constant propaganda that we're getting. Now, let's go back to the beginning of this pandemic back in February when the World Health Organization tweeted that there, there appeared to be no human-to-human transmission of the coronavirus. Well, we obviously learned that that was not true, and people like myself and many others uh, said at the beginning that that does not seem like a very responsible statement, and you can go roll the tape, go check my Twitter feed uh, from back at that time, and I specifically uh, made the statement that that does not seem like a responsible decision if we have this supposedly novel coronavirus, which, by the way, they kept saying novel because they were trying to terrify you. I'm now convinced that that was their their purpose, was to terrify you into accepting masks, accepting lockdowns, and in my opinion, all designed to help corrupt our, our, our election. But certainly they lied. Um, and they didn't misspeak and they didn't uh, get it wrong in an honest error. It had to be a conscious lie. It's just an unusual thing to say. There's no human-to-human transfer. We know that historically coronaviruses do have human-to-human transfer. And if this virus was supposed to be a novel coronavirus, uh, why would you make that assertion? You have something that we don't really know about. You know coronaviruses um, historically can transmit human-to-human. Wouldn't you kind of surmise that this COVID-19 that we supposedly didn't know much about had the possibility of human-to-human transfer? This is what we call critical thinking skills. Right on the heels of this statement, uh, the World Health Organization and Dr. Fauci and others shifted gears, and they came. The, the uh, Royal College of London told us that experts, experts, I tell you, think that the mortality rate is going to be three point four percent. Well, I was in a group of people, a chorus of people, who screamed, "That's ridiculous." They were basically taking only the people that were in the hospital that were deathly ill and using those that population to calculate this 3.4% mortality, ignoring the fact that we knew for certain that there were tons of people out in the community that were infected with this virus but were so minimally asymptomatic or completely asymptomatic that they weren't at the hospital. And so those people weren't being... Uh, computed in the calculation, which we knew would dramatically reduce that mortality rate. And we saw not long after that the CDC eventually reported that the mortality rate 
was down. There's a lot of different numbers, but the numbers that you're getting now that are posted on the CDC's website are similar to that with a typical influenza. More importantly, we learned a lot of other data along the way. For example, this disease seems to attack uh, people who are in their 70s or higher with comorbid conditions. That means sick old people. And this is one of the things I've reported on this show many times. I've been following the numbers myself by literally going through the lists of patients and looking at their ages, their sex, um, and what their comorbid conditions were because I wanted to see who this virus was affecting. And it became very obvious very early on that the virus was dangerous for people who were in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions, but the media refused to give us that information. This then transitioned into a lockdown, which no medical doctor can possibly believe. And the reason I say that or, or I should say no medical doctor could possibly support lockdown because there's no such thing. We didn't learn about this in medical school. There's no scientific data to back up lockdown. And actually, if you look at the origins of lockdown, this basically came from computer analysts doing computer modeling. And the policy got implemented during the George Bush administration over the objections of epidemiologists who rightly concluded, using critical thinking skills, that the lockdowns would be more deadly to the population than any potential benefit from lockdown, which there's no evidence there's any. That's another thing. We look at places like Sweden that did did not close schools. They did not implement mask mandates. They... um, they did not have any lockdowns. And when you look at their curves and in infections, it's very similar to uh, other countries who have um, have uh, applied the most draconian lockdowns and mask mandates. So when we're looking at the science, when we're using our critical thinking skills, we understand that the mortality of this disease is more akin to a flu season that affects primarily people in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions, um, and that there's a treatment available. But have you heard any of this information? No, no. We just continue to go on with threats of more mask mandates, threats of more lockdowns, and we continue to struggle to get patients hydroxychloroquine, which, by the way, I've now been treating patients for this entire pandemic, so we're coming up on 10, 11 months, and every single patient that I've treated with hydroxychloroquine has gotten better, including patients that were in high-risk categories. Now, I'm not here to say that that's scientific data to suggest that, that it's proof that hydroxychloroquine's effective. No. What I'm saying is that I reviewed literature that suggests to me that hydroxychloroquine is effective, and I know for a fact the literature confirms that hydroxychloroquine is safe. And so I've been taking a drug where there's plenty of literature suggesting that it works and tons of literature and 65 years of FDA approval confirming that it's safe. And I've been taking that information and I've been using it to treat my patients. And so far, every single one of my patients has gotten better. So this is what we call practicing medicine. And this is what we call critical thinking skills. And again, I'm not the only doctor out there, but have you heard any of this? No. Anytime a doctor wants to get out there and start talking 
about alternative treatments, which, by the way, shouldn't be alternative. They should be the primary treatments. Hydroxychloroquine is an FDA-approved medicine, 65 years. It's super safe. It's super cheap. Why are we not using it? It's like giving people chewing gum. And, and yet, no, we're not doing it. Now we go on the flip side of this. There's a drug called Rendesmavir that um, has one dubious study that the study was originally looking at Rendesmavir and its decrease on mortality of COVID-19. And they were able to figure out partway through the study that it was not going to show a decrease in mortality. So they changed the objective of the, objective of the study mid-study to be decrease in hospital stay. So you have this one dubious study that's not, cor- that's not performed correctly uh, based on scientific standards that shows a slight decrease in hospital stay. That medication is being widely distributed and used. By the way, it's $3,120 for a, fi- a five-day dose. That medicine's being used uh, everywhere you can imagine. And we're now getting an experimental vaccine that has been rushed through and we're being told that we're going to all be mandated to take this vaccine. Now let's apply a little bit of critical thinking skills. I got rendesmavir, I mean I've got hydroxychloroquine and quercetin, two medications for which there's lots of data and lots of uh, studies confirming it's safe. But we can't use that. We constantly hear from the media and others, governors and things, we need more We need more studies. That we have to have more studies for. But then you got this new thing, an experimental vaccine, which, by the way, those of us who go to medical school learn that vaccines commonly have problems uh, and that we need to use them for at least five to ten years to work out what those problems are. So we have this experimental vaccine that I haven't seen any data. Have you? No. There's no data out there. There's no clamoring from the media demanding to see data. No. We're just going to be told that we need to accept this vaccine and take it for a disease that literally has almost no chance of killing me or my family. Again, I'm asking you to use critical thinking skills. Does that even make sense to you? I have literally, based on the numbers that the World Health Organization, who I know they lie to me, and the CDC that happily propagates those that fake information, even their own numbers tell me that my risk of dying from COVID-19 is less than it would be from dying from a typical influenza, which, by the way, I never worried a day in my life that I was going to die from the flu. And I certainly am not worried for my children. And you have to understand, I love my children. If I thought there was any risk to them at all, I would definitely err on the side of caution. But what I'm actually seeing is kids are being denied their social relationships. They're being denied their ability to play sports, to go to their choirs, to go to their band practices, to do their drama clubs, to go on first dates, to go to proms. Kids are being uh, depressed because of these draconian lockdowns that have absolutely no basis in science. And honestly, this is really the genesis of my show today is I'm just fed up and mad. Now, fortunately for my kids, they have a situation. It's not ideal, but they're certainly not suffering like a lot of other kids are out there. We just saw a a football player in Maine committed suicide because of the depression of these lockdowns. 
and there's absolutely no science for it. So we have a bunch of people who are always yelling at us about following the science. These are the same people, uh, climate alarmists, that will tell us the science is settled and they won't allow me to look at any more data on man-made global warming or man-made climate change. And I just want to ask questions because if man is doing something to burn the planet up or to ruin our planet, I want to know about it because guess what? I live here. But I'm not an idiot. And I do have critical thinking skills. And I'm asking myself, they've been screaming about climate problems my entire life. First, it's going to be an ice age. Then we're going to all burn up. And then when that doesn't happen, it's climate change. I mean, that just on the face of it is so ridiculous that it sends up my antenna. You know, critical thinking skills. It seems like they tried the cold stuff. That didn't work. They tried the heat stuff. That didn't work. And then they do climate change, which is basically no matter what happens, we get to say there's man-made climate change. And because of that, we get to implement rules and taxes and all kinds of things that affect your life dramatically. But they don't ever have to present any actual data to me. And in fact, I know a lot of you are familiar with the 97% of of scientists, climate scientists, agree uh, with man-made global warming. Well... As a scientist, I followed up on that article, and basically the reality is, of the, of the climate scientists that they looked at, which by the way, there's no list of all the climate scientists out there, so there's no way they know that it's all the scientists, but of the scientists they looked at, two-thirds of them, okay, 66% opted to not make an opinion at all. Because they basically said to themselves, I have no idea if man is contributing to climate change. Of the third of the people that responded, um, 97% said that they think there's a possibility that man may play a role. Okay, that is a far cry from 97% of climate scientists agree there's man-made climate change. And all I'm pointing out to you is... Just because the powers that be are out there telling you something is happening doesn't mean you should turn your brain off and just blindly accept it. You need to use your own critical thinking skills and understand that uh, there are powers out there and entities out there that are trying to convince you of things, and they'll basically lie to you to do it. And what is happening with COVID-19 is absolutely unconscionable. And sometimes I feel like it's so commonsensical to me. I mean, I look at it and it's obvious, but I'm a doctor. I know coronavirus. I know masks. I know medicine. um, I know these medicines, hydroxychloroquine. And so I feel like I have a unique perspective to be able to see right through this fraud. And I talk to people that I love, that I care about, that are also very smart, And I've realized that they have been influenced by this propaganda of this massive death pandemic that they think is occurring. And it got me to thinking, like, this propaganda to us, 24-7 red line hysterical with the masks on, is actually affecting a lot of people who don't have the benefit of having gone to medical school and studied hydroxychloroquine and masks and lockdowns and uh, all of these things, coronavirus. And so what I'm trying to do is present you guys with some facts and some data so that you can make your own uh, critical thinking judgments um, and understand that 
that we're in the middle of something that is not nearly as bad as uh, the government is trying to make it out to be. Now, we already talked about the New England Journal of the Medicine and Lancet. When, when Donald Trump suggested that hydroxychloroquine would be effective, and by the way, that is not Donald Trump saying that. Donald Trump simply read in a book or in a paper, just like I did, that that was the case. He was basically just reading data that's ready, readily available to anyone, and quite frankly, he was correct. There is plenty of data out there to suggest that hydroxychloroquine may be effective, and I'm telling you it is effective, at the treatment of COVID-19 early. That's another thing. Early treatment. Every time they want to discredit hydroxychloroquine, they always present you research that shows late treatment when it's, you know, too late. If you give it early, it seems to be very effective. So Donald Trump's making this assertion that is 100% true. And when he made that assertion, the company Gilead, which is the pharmaceutical company that makes uh, rendesmavir, so the alternative medicine, their stock dropped. 21 billion dollars now you can use your own judgments as to what kind of motivations they had to discredit hydroxychloroquine so that we could be using rendesmavir but 21 billion dollar drop in stock seems like a pretty good motivator to me and what we know for a fact is that a company right after donald trump made that um, assertion a company called Surgisphere came into being that promoted this fake phony data that got published in the New England Journal of Medicine and a Lancet that said hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective at the treatment of COVID-19 but that it was deadly it suggested that it was causing these heart conditions that were killing people now I want to go back to critical thinking skills again for a minute you got a medication that's been FDA approved for 65 years. We use it for prophylaxis for malaria. It's used in patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, so sometimes frail people. We give it to young people, old people, pregnant people. 65 years, never a discussion of cardiac disease. So I, as a scientist, went back and looked through the data, and I think it was something like in the whole history, 65 years, 70 years of this medication, Something like 50 people have died of cardiac issues that were attributed to the hydroxychloroquine. Zero, zero of them at the doses that we would give to treat COVID-19. Do you understand that? A medication that's been in use for 65, 70 years, billions and billions and billions of doses, not one single death attributed to a cardiac issue, okay? Now, you got the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet all of a sudden fear-mongering. Oh, my God, hydroxychloroquine, it not only isn't working, it's causing cardiac death. Again, I'm asking you to use critical thinking skills. I'm looking at this, and I'm saying to myself, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. That was a lie. I knew it the minute those studies came out. Listen, this was a big deal. The New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, the number one and two medical journals on the earth, their peer review process is super rigorous. I personally have never been published in the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet, but I know people who have. It is very rigorous. I've been published for other journals, and I can tell you getting information past the peer review process is very, very difficult. And the point I'm trying to make is 
it doesn't seem plausible to me that this was an accident. Okay, it seems to me the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet had to be in on this propagandizing. And again, you can use your own um, critical thinking skills to figure out if $21 billion and Gilead's desire to use rendesmavir, which by the way we are, which by the way has one dubious study that only shows a slight decrease in hospital say and no decrease in mortality. If you're like me and you're saying none of this adds up, well, then we're on the same page. So there's more, and we're going to get into it when we come back from this break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We'll talk to you in just a minute. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. And we've been basically talking about critical thinking on today's show. And I want to give everybody some food for thought regarding critical thinking skills. Now, I probably should have started the show off with this, but when I was in high school back in 1983... Everybody read the book 1984 by George Orwell, and one of the important things we noted about that was the thought police was going to make the truth hate speech. And I can remember reading this book uh, along with all of my classmates, and we were all talking about it, and I remember everybody thinking how crazy this was and how this could never happen in real life. And yet here we are, 35, 40 years later, and we're actually living it. I, I've been listening to the book again on tape to remind myself, and it's really quite chilling this time around as we're actually living through this. And I'll think to myself, when I used to study World War II and study the Holocaust, and you'd see these pictures of people waiting in line to go to the gas chambers or waiting in line to be shot, I would ask myself, how could they just go along? How could they not all gather together and resist in some way and it was confusing to me and it took 50 years more of life and it took uh, you know a lifetime of experience to see how people behave and my fear is that I'm seeing a lot of the same behaviors today as they must have been going through right then there's this slow erosion of the rule of law. There's this erosion of critical thinking. There's this desire to burn books and ban information and discredit anybody who brings up anything that's not approved by the thought police. And I have it in my own life. People who love me and people who care about me, people who depend on me, tell me, keep your mouth shut. Don't put yourself out there. Don't expose yourself to cancel culture. And I think to what my father said about the leaders that you're looking for are inside you. You are the leader. You need to solve your own problems. Don't wait for other people to do it. Well, 
we're being faced with a crisis right now. And we need to band together and we need to not be afraid to tell the truth. And, you know, there's a famous sociology study where if a person gets up dancing in a big crowd, it doesn't really cause anybody to start dancing. But when the second person gets up and starts dancing, everybody else starts dancing. We all need to be that second person. Okay, we need to be sharing our critical thinking skills with people that have either lost them or are just ignoring it because they think it's too painful. You know, I have loved ones who tell me they just want to go to an island now. They're afraid of everything that's happening. And you have to understand, Ronald Reagan said it, if we lose freedom here, we're going to lose it everywhere. There is no safe place to go. The United States of America is the greatest society in human history. It's worth fighting for. And we need to all start by telling the truth. We all have different roles to play here. But one of the small things we can do is let's stop going along with this groupthink. Listen, I just told you guys I was spent a week in Vegas at the UFC, which, by the way, is an absolutely first-class organization. I had a fantastic time there. But... I got on a plane and I had my mask on, but I can take my mask off to eat and uh, I can take my mask off to take sips and drinks. This Does this even make sense to any of you? You go to a restaurant and you got to put your mask on to walk to the table, but when you get to the table, you can take your mask off and you can start eating. But if you want to go to the bathroom, then you got to put your mask back on. you got to walk to the bathroom. You come back, you take your mask off, and you start eating again. Does this even make sense to anybody? I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't. When you say it out loud, I just saw a friend who's got a son who's in the band, and he's a trombone player, and he has a mask with a zipper. You unzip it, you put the trombone in your mouth, and you zip the mask up around this trombone. Folks, we've absolutely started to lose our minds. Cloth masks don't work. When people start talking about studies about masks that show that they may be effective. They are what we call in vitro studies in laboratories where they look at the particle size of droplets and suggest that maybe certain droplets will not go through the mask or that the droplets will not travel a certain distance. And then they extrapolate this out to suggest that the masks are effective. But there is no study that actually shows when people wore masks you had a decrease in the transmission of influenza-like viruses. And I try to explain it to people like this. When When you play football, I used to play football in high school, and so coach would draw up plays. And the plays were designed to create advantage for... Uh, for your team and you would draw these plays up it would be you want this person to block that person you want this receiver to go and do a down and in to draw off the coverage and then the other guy would go and do a down and out and he'd be wide open and that's the way you drew it up on the drawing board and you thought to yourself okay great let's go to the game No, of course not. That's not what you did. Drawing up the play is just the first part of the process. Now you got to actually take it onto the field and you got to start to practice it. Because what you may find out is the person, the receiver going in and doing the down and in to try and attract the defense doesn't work. It's just not drawing the coverage the way you want it, which means the receiver that you're going to throw to isn't open. Or maybe the person who's supposed to be blocking the uh, other guy is not big and strong enough, and the big guy is just coming in and getting to the quarterback before they can make a play. The point is, when you come up with an idea, you have to actually test it to see if it works. 
you find out things during that test and you make adjustments and the science is never settled we're always learning more understanding more getting better gathering more data scientific research is not a one and done you don't do a paper and just have okay well we got that piece of information and you're done studying that and move on no you bring it in it's just another piece of information it's not all it's just another piece sometimes it's a good piece of data sometimes it isn't but what we never do is say the science is settled and what we never do is retract information because we think people aren't capable of handling it and that's another thing that just happened we have a paper that was released by Johns Hopkins University. I'm sure all of you have heard of Johns Hopkins University. It's a respectable institution. And there was a person named Genevieve Briand, who's the assistant director for the Masters in Applied Economics, who basically looked at the CDC's numbers, their own numbers on the website, and she came up with information that I have heard in a lot of other different places. She just put it together very eloquently. But what she noticed was... We're not seeing a statistical increase in deaths in 2020 compared to 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016. In fact, there's no difference. When you look at the number of deaths that are attributed to COVID, it almost exactly corresponds with the number of deaths that we're not seeing from heart disease and other respiratory uh, illnesses. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The overall number of deaths in 2020 statistically is not any different than other years. So if we're having this pandemic that's causing this mass increase in deaths, why are we not seeing it in the data? Moreover, the people that are being attributed to having died of COVID, that number is almost exactly lines up with the number of people we're not seeing, the decreases in heart disease and other respiratory illnesses and other things like that. That's what we call critical thinking skills. It's almost as if they're taking patients that died of other things and ascribing them a COVID diagnosis. Now, I'm here to tell you that absolutely is happening. I've seen it with my own eyes. You have a patient that has appendicitis. They go to the doctor to get their appendicitis taken care of. While they're there, they have to get a mandatory test. We already know the CDC is admitted. A lot of these tests are flawed, so there are a lot of false positives. The person gets a swab. They test positive. That person is calculated as a COVID diagnosis and a COVID admission. But the reason they're in the hospital has nothing to do with COVID. It's because they have this appendicitis. I've seen this with my own eyes. This has been reported by multiple investigative reporters like John Solomon and others over the course of the pandemic. We know the testing is flawed. And there are other scientists around the world. Listen, I've talked about it on the show many times. I'm connected with doctors from around the world through email texts, uh, sorry, email chains, text chains, uh, and other other methods so that we can share information and talk about issues of the day. And obviously, COVID is one of those issues. And there are re- respectable, reputable doctors out there that have made this assertion that when you look at the admission of patients with respiratory illness in 2020, that it's no different than other years, 2019, 2018, 2017, and it's true across the different age groups. So, of course, I can't say this out loud because the people who want to discredit everything I'm saying are going to call me a conspiracy theorist. You get people saying, 
um, well, what, what are you saying? There's nothing going on. You're telling me there's nothing happening. What I'm telling you is the data is the data, and I want to look at it. I have brought this up a million times on this show. My practice has now been open the entire time, and we have not had a single hospital admission or a single death that I'm aware of. Now, how is that possible? If we have this deadly pandemic, we've been open almost a year. We have multiple clinics, a surgery center, thousands and thousands of patient interactions. Wouldn't you think that we would have come across anybody? Now, I've had people test positive. I've even had people get sick. But I've given everybody hydroxychloroquine early, and they've all gotten better. Listen, this is just a piece of the puzzle. I'm not suggesting that my experience is unequivocal proof. What I'm saying is that I've read detailed data out there, and my data seems to be going along with what I'm reading. And... More importantly, the people that are telling me I'm wrong have been caught lying to me about all kinds of things. They're lying to me about um, uh, the numbers. They're um, lying to us about the uh, efficacy and safety of medicines like hydroxychloroquine. They're lying to us about purported um, uh, mortality rates. Now, I was really, really frustrated yesterday. I was on my way home. And my, my kids, we were talking about masks, and they got all kinds of activities coming up, and everybody's all panicking about being exposed to somebody who's being exposed and all this. And I, I can understand the parents' desire to be safe, but I was trying to explain to my children that they're asymptomatic, and the data shows that children, school-age children, who are asymptomatic simply do not transmit the disease to their teachers or to other adults. And they, my own kids, are looking at me, no, 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 we're, we're super spreaders. They didn't use that term, but this is the propaganda that my own kids are getting, and it's really starting to irritate me. The data that we have on school-age children is the best research available, and it shows zero. The Iceland study, the Sweden study in Brazil, places where they sent their children back to school, no lockdowns, no masks. They, they did um, haplotype testing of the virus. So, for example, if a kid went home and their parents got sick, they could actually determine that the parents did not catch it from the kid. And so the number is zero. Not one single person in these studies. Now, that data is great data, and it tells us that we should be sending our kids back to school so that we don't cause any unnecessary damage in their social development and in their lives. But yet this data is just completely being ignored. Our kids are being forced to wear masks. They're missing all of their activities. And then people like me who are trying to bring this up uh, are being censored by big tech because they say we're safe making statements that are against the World Health Organization. This person, Genevieve Briand, using the CDC's own data, the numbers are the numbers. I left out the, the, the fact that Johns Hopkins retracted this story. So this data got published on um, uh, November 22nd, 2020. Then people like me looked at it. it. It comported with other data that I've seen, but Johns Hopkins is a reputable university. This was a very elegant study, and the numbers are the numbers. And then on... November the 26th, Johns Hopkins retracted it. And they use this, you know, this is what we call the thought police, right? We cannot allow people to use this misinformation to, uh, to create a dangerous situation for the public. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you talking about? The numbers are the numbers. I am a doctor. 
and an educated person, not that I have to be one, but you're telling me that I'm not allowed to look at the numbers? It's not like it's not like they're pointing out an error in calculation or some sort of problem or flaw in the study, you know, like the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet where it's fake data. No, they're not saying anything like that. They're just saying that the public is not qualified to process this data. So they retracted it. Okay. Now, to my loved ones who uh, even I, somebody I really care about and who is super smart tells me, well, this person, uh, Genevieve Briand, is not a doctor. Uh, you don't need to be a doctor to look at the numbers and to just do an analysis of the numbers. Look, the numbers are the numbers. They don't lie. And these numbers are telling us information that suggests that this pandemic is not nearly the deadly pandemic that the government and others are trying to make it out to be. Now, again, we're going to get back to the critical thinking skills, but when I was in medical school, we used to learn about how to read scientific uh, research critically and understanding that every single research paper has bias in it. There's no question about it. We're all biased. And there are things that you can do to try and decrease that bias, and we would study that stuff and learn how to read a paper and, and ascertain for ourselves the strength and validity of a paper based on our understanding of what eliminates bias. And some of the things are what we call blinding. So, for example, as a doctor, if I'm trying an experiment using a certain kind of uh, medicine, it's good if I'm blinded so that I don't know who I'm giving the medicine to because if, I'm, if I know who's getting the medicine, my behavior towards those patients may change. If I know this patient is getting a placebo, I might behave in a different way. And so blinding me as the doctor so that when I'm hanging out the medicine, uh, I don't know who's getting the real medicine or fake medicine. Now, that's good. Blinding is good. Double blinding is better. That's where the doctor doesn't know and the patient doesn't know. That's what we call double blind. That decreases bias. Um, there's a thing called intra-observer and inter-observer uh, error. So, for example, when I measure the range of motion of a joint like an elbow, we have a little device called a goniometer, and I can tell it goes an elbow goes from 0 degrees to 135 degrees, and I have this little device. But I may come in on that same patient uh, 10 minutes later and use the goniometer, and I get from 5 degrees to 125 degrees. That's what we call intra-observer error. Like, I can't even get the same information as the same person. Then you can have inter-observer error where... I come in, I measure zero degrees to 135 degrees. Another doctor will come in and measure, you know, minus five degrees to 110 degrees. And this information is off. That creates bias and error in the scientific research. We've completely lost any concept of that. These research papers that are on our kids with the, the Iceland study, these are fantastic papers with very limited bias that have um, PCR uh, uh, haplotype testing of the virus so that they know exactly who's transmitting to who. These are very well done and powerful studies. Then you have the CDC predicating their mask mandates on these two hairdressers in St. Louis that did a bunch of hair and, you know, none of the people apparently tested positive. This is such a weak, poor study. It's not even a study. But yet, this is the information that the CDC is trying to tell us 
is justification for them giving us these mask mandates. Man, this stuff does not even pass the smell test, and it's not critical thinking. You know, if you uh, sit there, and I notice every time I drink my coffee in the morning, the sun seems to come up. You can make the inference that, man, it's when I drink my coffee causes the sun to come up. Well, clearly that's not what happens. That's just a correlation. But the drinking of the coffee is not making the sun cut up. This is what these retro, retrospective studies are doing. And that introduces another kind of bias. And this type of um, promotion of these poor studies by people who want lockdowns, who want mask mandates, who want to force us to take the vaccines, who wanted us to uh, vote by mail. All of these people are citing these awful poor studies that are not even remotely decent scientific research. And they're asking us to ignore things like the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet published fake data or the, the studies that they're citing on rendesmavir, one study that was changed midway through in terms of not looking for decrease in mortality, but looking at a decrease in hospital stay, which is a no-no when you're doing scientific research. You get one study like that, and yet we're, and we're being asked to use rendesmavir. We got the vaccine coming out and are already talking about mandating that we take the vaccine. And I don't know anybody who's actually seen the data to be able to verify it. I mean, this does not even make any sense. Now, I'm just going to tell you, when I was uh, doing my fellowship in sports medicine, part of my, uh, my, my education was I had to do a research paper. And doing that research paper taught me a lot. I hate research. I'm just, I'm a, I'm a stallion. I need to be open and running, and I just can't stand research. Now, research is super important. And evidence-based medicine is important. Um, sadly, we're not doing that anymore, uh, but that doesn't mean it's any less important. But let me just give you a little story to help you kind of understand the inside baseball of what's going on here. Now, I uh, had to do this study, and I was operating with my mentor one day, and I noticed that every time we did an ACL, he would take a chunk of the tissue and he'd send it to the lab for for uh, a bacterial analysis. And I asked him, why do you do that? It's such an odd thing to do. And he said, I once had a patient that got a clostridium infection from an ACL, and I think that it came from a dirty graft, uh, but the, the company that sold me the tissue said... Um, that it was me, that I contaminated it. And I thought to myself at the time, Clostridium is gangrene. It's from the dirt. And it's just not the kind of infection that you get in an operating room. When we get infections from the operating room, it's usually staph or strep bacteria that live on our skin. So I thought, man, that is a really unusual infection to get, Clostridium. So I said, you know what, I'm going to do my research paper on that. So I started reading about it and studying it. And at the time, there were a few deaths nationwide from people getting what we call allograft, which is to, means to get cadaver tissue uh, when we, we do orthopedic surgery. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this person that my mentor did got an infection, and I had a few other patients that I knew died um, and got sick. And so I started gathering this data and researching. I went down to uh, a conference somewhere, and I started talking to another doctor, 
and I started sharing with him the story that I had this patient with a clostridium infection, and he looks at me and he goes, oh my God, so did I. Now, you got to understand, I'd never heard of this before, getting a clostridium infection from cadaver tissue when we're doing this orthopedic surgery. And here, I have this other orthopedic surgeon who had the same experience as we did. So I got all of his information, and guess what? That surgeon who worked in a different state got the other half of the graft from the very same cadaver that we got. I mean, talk about lightning striking twice. That At that point, there is no question that the company that sold the grafts sent us contaminated grafts. So the next thing was, how did this happen? So me, being a pretty smart person uh, and being an educated person, I thought to myself, you know what? I bet we know the information as a scientific community. It's just we're not connecting the dots. And what I mean by that is when I was in medical school, I learned everything. You know, we learned microbiology and physiology and anatomy and chemistry and all this. stuff. I mean, we learned on nutrition. And when I was studying that stuff in medical school, I had a tremendous breadth of knowledge. I knew all kinds of stuff. But then I got into my residency, orthopedic surgery, and now I've been practicing orthopedic surgery for uh, a long time. And, of course, my orthopedic surgery knowledge is tremendous. But I've forgotten a lot of things about chemistry and, and, and uh, microbiology and things of that nature. And so that's what tends to happen is people go off in one direction and they don't really know about the progress made in another direction, even though as the human race we have this information. And this is what I was thinking. We know what's happening. So I started researching and studying, and I kind of learned that what's happening is about 10% of people have this clostridium living in their gut. So the more common place is for this uh, bacteria to be in the dirt. So, you know, if somebody gets a car accident and they have a, you know, broken bone and they get the dirt in it, that's typically where this gangrene comes from. But there's another way that 10% of people have this type of bacteria living in their gut. And so I started thinking to myself, that must be where the bacteria is coming from. Where else could you possibly get clostridium on this tissue that we're using to transplant into patients? And so I started doing a lot of investigation. I won't bore you guys with the details, but suffice it to say, what I found out was when somebody dies at the time, it's much better now based on my paper, but at the time when somebody dies, uh, say you get in a car accident, you come to a trauma center and that patient dies, we have a bunch of organs. And so, you know, you probably have it on your driver's license that you're a donor for tissues and things like that. So people will come in and they'll harvest hearts and kidneys and all the rest if that person is a donor. Well, they also come in and harvest connective tissue like Achilles tendons and patella tendons and things like that that we can use in orthopedic surgery to recreate ligaments. And what I found out was they actually had men's from like the Lions Club, you know, with the fez and the little hat. These guys were coming in and harvesting this tissue and using instruments that were kind of in the back of their, um, <laughs> in the trunk of their car. There really weren't a lot of regulations on how to harvest this tissue. And what was happening was you get a patient, they get in a car accident, and they die. They show up at a trauma center, and in their gut, they have this clostridium bacteria. Well, there's a there's a barrier that we call the gut-blood barrier that kind of keeps the bacteria in the gut and prevents it from getting in the blood. But when you die, that 
barrier breaks down for a little bit. So you die, the gut, the gut blood barrier breaks down, and that clostridium bacteria that's living in the gut of 10% of people can get into the blood, and then your heart pumps a little bit before you completely die and seeds the tissues with this um, with the spores. And then we take that tissue and we uh, re-implant it in a patient 10 years later, and when it gets in the body, it's like putting it in a Petri dish, and boom, you get this infection. So I was able to go and put this paper together. It's one of the most referenced papers in the world in orthopedic surgery, and it was super important. It actually changed the way we do tissue banking in this country. And the important thing to notice, that was really one of the most important studies I ever did, and because of it, I became an editor of the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Nobody ever checked me. Nobody ever checked my credentials. Nobody's ever checked my ability to be uh, an editor. Um, And I realized when I wrote my paper that nobody really checked my work. And I could have put anything. Now, of course, I was very thorough in all that. But the point I'm trying to make is just because it's written down in a book doesn't make it so. And there is nobody out there who's qualified to be the arbiter of free speech. And that's why we cannot burn books, we cannot ban papers, and we cannot ban data. You have to allow all of that information to be exposed to sunlight so that we can all look at it, and we can all challenge each other's assertions, and we can all get the truth. And that's the most important thing about today is we need to talk about the truth. Stop letting these people lie to us. Let's start using our critical thinking skills. Let's get our businesses open backed up. Let's get these masks off our face. Let's get our kids back to school. And let's get back to our lives. It's what the science tells us to do. You guys have been listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge and America's Web Radio. I hope this was helpful to you guys. Um, reach out to me on Twitter. That's at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. That's at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. I'll see you guys next time on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.